Well, good morning, Grace family. Man, I feel, I feel like I could greet you individually in here. This is great. The Price family, Uncle Tim, uh, the Danas, Neil, Jonathan, Rick, Sarah, Joseph girls, hello. Hello, how are you? Um, you're back, Sarah. You had a good trip? I did. I did. Fo followed you on Facebook. I was like, oh, I didn't even know she was over there. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so thanks for being here. Yes. You know, I grew up playing basketball, um, but I had a late start. I started playing in middle school, and while I made my high school basketball team, I was still relatively inexperienced in organized basketball. And one of the most eye-opening experiences for me was playing my first road game. And there's something you need to know. If you're not familiar with kind of the basketball culture, if you start your kids young, whether it's a local city rec league or the YMCA, you have coaches that teach them the rules, the fundamentals, and you have friends and family that are there cheering you on. Uh, and you, you get assigned a team mom that gives you snacks and goodies after the game, regardless <laughs> if you win or not. <laughs> so when you get goodies after the game, hey, that's a win in my book, it doesn't even matter. So it's a very nurturing environment when you first start out as a young child. But as you get older, the game, gets way more serious. So when you're the road team, you walk in, this whole crowd, this entire gym is rooting against you and hoping that you fail. I remember I walked in and everyone's yelling and screaming and I, and I remember first thinking like, whoa, what did I do to tick everybody off? <laughs> you know, no, no snacks after this game. You're playing this, this game, you're not getting the, the calls you typically get at home. Uh, you're, you're not familiar with your surroundings. Uh, it could be quite an intimidating scene. You're tempted just to forget the game plan and play scared. And when you play scared, you don't play well. And there are two things I've learned in playing in hostile territory, two things I've learned and that you need in order to succeed. The first thing is embrace the adversity. And because when you embrace the adversity and you know that it's hard up front, well, you have one of two choices. You either falter under the pressure or you rise to the challenge. The second thing you need to do is you need to stick to the game plan. Stick to the game plan. So when you're in a player and adversity hits, you, you, you're tempted just to do what you need to do to survive. Crowds yelling at you, feeding off every one of your mistakes, every missed shot, every turnover, every time you turn and yell at the ref, they feed off of that. And the crowd becomes wild. But the game hasn't changed. It's still basketball. And you still need to do what you fundamentally need to do in order to win the game. You have to keep your composure. And if you don't, you'll get eaten alive. And when you've gained enough experience and understanding that playing away games is going to be more difficult than playing at home, it eliminates the surprise factor. And when difficulty and adversity breaks out, you're not caught off guard. And when adversity is no longer a surprise, you could face it and meet it head on with the warrior-like mentality. So we come to a time in the Bible where Jesus warns his disciples of the adversity and the persecution to come. And that persecution is way more serious than a basketball game. And the purpose of these verses we're about to read is to eliminate the surprise factor when persecution breaks out. And in our passage, we're going to see that the world hates us. 
And we're going to see the reasons why the world hates us. But despite those things, there's a promise, a promise of a coming helper that will comfort us in the midst of this rising hostility. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John 15. John chapter 15. And starting in verse 18, and we'll read through chapter 16, verse 4. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So here, the world will hate us. Well, what is, what is this world that John is talking about, this word cosmos, world? Well, it's an ordered system, a system that is evil. D.A. Carson says this, when John is referring to the, to the world, he defines it as a created moral order in active rebellion against God. The world is a created moral order in active rebellion against God. Okay, so what is this ordered system and why does it hate us? Well, there's three reasons from our passage why the world hates us. And reason number one, in verse 19, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. See, when you become a Christian, your relationship with the world changed you see, back in verse 16, Jesus says, I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and your fruit would remain. So this is what we call sovereign election, that Jesus chose you, that God chose you, that we had nothing to do with this. And when he chose us out of this world, our status changed. Our relationship to the world changed. Our relationship with God changed. Our complete paradigm, our worldview changed. Listen to Paul as he tells the Galatians, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 
Paul also says to the Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 13. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. See, the world's going to slander us. It's going to hate us because we have different priorities and different concerns. This is because we're not of the world. And now, there's a temptation that some of us have that could assume and blame that hatred on us. That somehow we're not winsome enough when we're sharing the gospel. It's somehow our fault. Or what can we do differently to lessen this hatred? Or how can we package our message different so that the world could be more receptive to it? Well, do we ever stop and consider that the hatred that we receive is not necessary from a bad decision we've made, but from a good decision we've made. Maybe it's not that we didn't accurately share the gospel, but it was because we did accurately share the gospel. You see, our winsomeness, our cultural relevance, and trying to do everything to make the gospel as non-offensive as possible has pulled the teeth out of the mouth of the lion. And Yes, we are called to be winsome and kind and gentle and not to be unnecessarily offensive or abrasive, but because God has called us to do that. Not because we want to water down the truth or appease the world or believing that in our winsomeness it'll be more receptive to us. No, we're not of this world. So we will not be loved by it no matter how well we package our message. We live in an entirely different value system that puts the glory of God at the center of everything. And I fear that being non-offensive has become the 11th commandment and that the new fruit of the Spirit is to be nice and that we measure how good we're doing, how well we're doing, by how little we offend people, how little we rock the boat. And that Christian passivity is now some sort of virtue that we need to uh, strive for. And there's this need also to consistently apologize for our faith or apologize for a few bad examples in our faith. And this uh, idea of groveling and self-loathing isn't exactly going to win the world over. No, it's, it's actually a pretty pathetic looking. And Carl Truman says this, Christianity tells the world what it does not wish to hear. We should not expect to be embraced by those whose thoughts and deeds contradict the truths of our faith, nor should we seek to make our faith more palatable, lest the salt lose its savor. See, the world loves its own, and only its own. This is not primarily a sociological remark about inborn suspicion about strangers or people different from them. No, it's, it's far beyond that. This is a moral condemnation, a moral condemnation that says, if you don't agree with our values, you will be ostracized. You'll be shamed into compliance. We will smear you in front of the world and slam you for the miserable wretches that you are. That's the world. Now, there is some overlap with sociological and theological reasons for why the world hates us, but fundamentally speaking, 
It's theological. But sociological spe speaking, think of the first century. Christians refuse to make offers to Caesar, sacrifices to Caesar. And Christians had an allegiance elsewhere that was troubling to the social and political order. There wasn't freedom of religion that we experience here in the United States and often take for granted. There was real cost to being a Christian. And the more Christians gain influence, it means those in power begin to lose their influence. And that was unsettling and frightening to the world order. But theologically speaking, as we said earlier, the world is an active rebellion against God. And these rebels find it difficult to tolerate those who have joyful allegiance to another king in another kingdom. But the kingdom of darkness is becoming more aggressive to God and his truth, and the world will hate us more and more because we don't belong to it. We won't get with the program. See, our lives as Christians is a living and verbal rebuke to the culture. The standards of goodness and evil have been completely corrupted and twisted. Objective truth must now bow the knee to subjective feelings because the world worships the creature rather than the creator and does not give glory due his name. And we stand and we say, no. We reject ungodliness and unrighteousness and we follow God by following and abiding in his word. Reason number two why the world hates us. It hates us because it hated Jesus. Here in verse 20, chapter 15, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So this if clause, if they persecuted me, it shouldn't be taken as a hypothetical possibility that in fact never occurs. But a better read of it would be, if they persecuted me, and many of them did, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, and some of them did, they will also obey yours. In short, there will be persecution in this world. Not by everybody, but certainly by some. But there will also be people who obey the word as we proclaim his good news. Not by all, but by some. People will continue to be divided over Jesus and his message like they were divided during his earthly life and ministry. So if the world hated Jesus, well, why did they hate Jesus? And the reason is Jesus testifies that their deeds are evil, John 7, 7. And Christ's followers will be hated by the same world because we're associated with Jesus. So the response to Jesus' disciples, whether good or bad, is ultimately a ref reflection of who Christ is. And although Jesus elevated the disciples to status of friends in chapter 15, verse 15, they were still not greater than Jesus. Meaning that those who preach Jesus' gospel and live in this progressive conformity to his life and character and his teaching will attract the same animosity that he did. In the church, God's people, see, we preach sin, judgment, grace, wrath, heaven, hell, truth, Jesus crucified and risen and will return again someday. And we identify evil as evil. That the sexual revolution is evil. Adultery is evil. Abortion is evil. Self-righteousness is evil. Greed is evil. Oppression is evil. But we will be hated for it. As Christians, we preach his name and his message. And since we are not greater than our master, 
we will not escape the same hostility he endured. So reason one, we are not of this world. Reason two, they hated Jesus, so they will hate us. And finally, reason three, they did not know God. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Skip down to chapter 16, verse 3. And, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So this is the condition of the unregenerate human being, the non-believer. They hate God because they don't know him personally. And that hatred could be expressed in various degrees and in different ways, but it's all hatred. In Romans 1, Paul says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a disbased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 1, verse 28 and verse 32. So the unregenerate person, the non-believer, rejects Christ because of his righteousness and because they've been given over to a depraved mind that leads to that rejection. And this, and this idea of rejecting Christ continues in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. See, now this idea that if Jesus hadn't come, that people would have continued in sinless perfection. That's not what this passage is saying. This isn't the first time these people have heard of personal sin and guilt before God. No. Rather, Jesus' presence and message exposed people's sin and rebellion against God in its most pronounced form, the rejection of the Messiah. And the rejection of the Messiah is a decisive preference of darkness rather than light. And they hated Jesus for speaking the truth and exposing their darkness. And they rejected his words in verse 22, his words spoken to them, and they rejected his works in verse 24. And the people rejected the foolish revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thus, the rejection of the clearest light, the foolish revelation, and therefore it incurs the most central, deep-stained guilt possible. And the world's culpability in rejecting the divine revelation brought about by rejecting Jesus brings with it a verdict. And the verdict is this. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that the deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done, they have done in the sight of God. John 3, verse 19 through 21. And this world, and this word hate is a strong 
rejection, this notion of rejection. There's no middle ground. Either you accept and embrace Jesus and his message or you reject him and the good news of salvation. And the people of the world is without excuse. So Jesus coming, his, re- his revelation simultaneously exposes people's sin but also provides the remedy. And the world rejects Jesus and hates that exposure that he brings and will deny that they need a remedy at all. In verse 24, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now Jesus refers to the father as my father as opposed to saying the father, which shows a unique relationship that Jesus has with God the father. And whether people realize it or not, Jesus's work and message was nothing less than God's work and God's message. And in verse 25, but the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So here, this idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment. So none of this hatred or animosity that by the world should be viewed as potentially endangering God's plan. It shouldn't be thought of as threatening what God will ultimately accomplish. Even in this hateful rejection of Jesus and his people serves to fulfill the law. And this term, their law, doesn't mean that Jesus and his disciples failed to recognize their authority. No, and it's not trying to disassociate from the law. But on the contrary, Jesus repeatedly appeals to the same scriptures in the defense of his claims. The point is rather ironic that the Jews' own scripture condemns their position And the word of God, which they believe was the word of God, testifies of Jesus. And they hated me without a cause. This is a quote from Psalm 69.4, this Davidic typology. It's messianic in nature that when the Messiah comes and the hatred that follows is irrational, that's unreasonable, it's illogical, it is without reason. And now, knowing that there will be hatred and opposition, and knowing why there will be hatred and opposition, John gives us hope. Jesus gives us hope in the form of a helper, the coming helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus will not leave us as orphans. And in verse 26, it reads, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because... You have been with me from the beginning. So one of the reasons why the world hates us is because it hated Jesus. How then does the hatred continue when he's physically absent? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit joins the disciples in testifying about Jesus to the world. And the world's opposition continues to evolve around the question of who is Jesus And the Holy Spirit will continue to convict the world of sin and the world will fight that conviction by suppressing the truth in all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they did not know Me. John 16, verse 8 and 9. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, the church will gather as God's people and continue the message of Christ in the gospel. And this is how the world continues to hate us without the physical presence of Jesus. 
And as we said at the beginning, the purpose of these verses is to eliminate the surprise factor when persecution breaks out. So when Jesus wanted to warn his disciples to to have them fully aware of the intensity of the opposition is with the purpose so that they won't stumble or fall away. And the threat of apostasy is real. Read with me, please, in chapter 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So here, even this passage shows that the the danger of the disciples and the world is is not even death, but apostasy. And D.A. Carson says this about this passage, to warn prospective disciples in these unyielding realities serves to discourage fraudulent conversions and to foster true ones, just as Jesus told these things to the first disciples in order to ensure stability until the time of faith truly dawned. And this idea of fraudulent conversions. See, persecution and opposition not only produces fruit, but it reveals you had fruit to begin with. It reveals the true believers from the false believers. And even the motive of the opposition is revealed in this passage, believing that they're offering service to God, believing they're actually doing a good thing by persecuting Christians. And the book of Acts is a model of Christian persecution. You have the church that was born. You have the apostles preaching the gospel, thousands of people being saved. Then the apostles Peter and John arrested and thrown in jail by the Jewish authorities for preaching the gospel in Jesus Christ. And upon their release, continued to perform works and wonders and miracles and healing and were thrown back in jail. And then we meet Stephen, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, full of faith, was brought before the Sanhedrin council, stood alone and preaches to them, summarizing the entire Old Testament from memory, pointing to Jesus from beginning to end and said, you were the person that crucified the awaited Messiah. And the heavens opened. And yet Stephen was killed and executed. And then... A great persecution breaks out against all believers spearheaded by Saul of Tarsus. And this is an example of somebody persecuting Christians actually believing they're doing a good thing. They're doing a service to God. And even at the conversion of Paul or Saul into Paul in Acts 9, he faced immediate persecution from the people of Damascus. And this theme of persecution runs throughout the book of Acts until the end, but it didn't end there. Throughout history, we have Roman history, official persecution by Christians, Emperor Nero in 64 AD, Emperor Domitian in 90 AD, Emperor Decius in 250 AD, and I could go on. And all these were motives that they felt were good things. Now that didn't make the problem better. It made it worse because if people actually believe opposition to God and Christianity is a good thing because they believe they're on the right side of history, it makes it that much more difficult to convince them otherwise. What Christians have discovered is that the most dangerous oppression doesn't come from ordinary pagans, but it comes from zealous adherence 
to ideologies diametrically opposed to God and truth. Now, you might be saying, you know, Junior, I really don't feel this persecution. I don't really feel this hatred you're talking about or even what this passage is talking about. You know, living in the United States, I could totally understand that because I don't feel it either. But somewhere in the world, believers are being killed for their faith in some gruesome ways. And the difficulty other believers face in other parts of the world is well documented. Now, we haven't had all the same degree of persecution. That doesn't mean that we should feel guilty, that we don't face the same kind of persecutions that those around the world do. But it does put our situation in the United States in perspective. If we're too afraid to speak up and proclaim the gospel in the freest country in the world, what chance does the church have in surviving? If we let evil and darkness go unchecked, evil and darkness will reign. We have the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take that light, take that message and shine it into the darkness with boldness and without reservation. So question, what does persecution look like for us specifically in our United States context? Well, for Christians, I think a measure of persecution is related to our faithfulness in the Lord. If we say Jesus is the only way, truth, and the light, and no man comes to the Father but by Him, we'll be hated because we're not inclusive enough. If we say that God created and instituted marriage between a man and a woman, we will be hated. If we say that there are men and women and that gender is binary and that's God's created order, we will be hated. If we say an unborn child has a right to life because they are created in God's image and have dignity and worth, we will be hated. So if we stand up for any of these truths, God's truths, we will be hated. But take comfort. The hate that happens is not outside of God's knowledge or his control. Here in verse two, uh, 16, verse 2, that the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he's offering service to God. Skip to verse 4. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. See, in this context, their hour refers to the death of Jesus, but not only the death of Jesus, but also the outbreak of the persecution of his followers that will ensue. It is their hour because it will appear that the oppressors have the upper hand. And from the perspective of faith, their hour is only but a moment, three days to be exact. And ultimately, the oppressors are working their own defeat. So John here is weaving a bit of irony that what appears to be their hour in finally defeating Jesus by killing him has introduced Jesus's hour, in which case he seems to be suffering defeat in his death, but is actually the very moment he's winning the greatest of all victories, and they are suffering the greatest of all defeats. 
And then Jesus gave words of encouragement to his disciples that he goes away and he prepares a place for them in his father's house and he will come back again and that the Holy Spirit will come and reside in them permanently and the Holy Spirit will comfort them, empower them to do great things and give them joy, peace, and hope in the midst of hardship. So take these promises, personalize them, let them pour over your soul internalize them, own them, the promises that says, I have called you my own. I have helped you a hundred times and I will continue to help you because I am faithful. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will protect you from the evil one. And not only to his disciples, but now to us through his word, he also says, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus chose us before the foundations of the world that we will be holy and blameless before him in love. And he's adopted us into his family and given us the spirit that now we're even able to cry out, Abba, Father. And he uses the same spirit to seal us until the day of redemption because he takes us as his own to the praise of his glory. God loves you. And he gave up his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it's with this love that empowers us. It emboldens us to embrace adversity and to look at opposition, to meet it head on and face it with a warrior-like mentality. Oh yes, there'll be temptation to withdraw contact from the world, but we cannot do this. We have to stick to the game plan because Jesus didn't do this. He chose us out of the world, but sends us back in to proclaim his message and his good news. He set us free from the fear of death. And Jesus, through his death, destroyed the power of the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through the fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. And if we are free from the greatest of all fears, the fear of death, no amount of hatred the world can produce could separate us from the love of Christ. There's no tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, nakedness, sword. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And if we've been granted for the sake of Christ, to share in his suffering, we shall also be granted to share in his conquest, in his victory, in his glory. And Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So typically, I would get into the application portion of this study, but since this is a breakout session, we're going to break out in groups. There's uh, discussion questions. There's four of them, and you feel free to get in groups of people around you, three or four people, whatever you feel comfortable with, and maybe talk through these questions, maybe even help me with some application portion of it. Uh, we'll do that for a few minutes, and then uh, we'll come back again and then uh, we'll hear what you guys have to say or share a little bit of what you guys say in your group. So I'm going to start a timer. 
If you didn't have the questions, it should be right there in the beginning. All right. So when this goes off, we'll come back.
right, one more minute, and if we could finish up. Love to hear what you guys are talking about. Let's bring it in. Bring it in. That was a short minute. No, it's 20, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Well, no, you yeah. said a minute. Like oh, okay. Sorry. Like oh, sorry. Sorry about that. You keep, you keep talking after. That's not a problem. All right. Who? Uh, so let us in on some of your conversation. What did you guys come up with? Um, what, what were some interesting things you guys mentioned? Um, you know... When I was going to Talbot, I forget if it was Clint Arnold or Mike Wilkins, but when he would throw, when they would throw out a question, and they would wait, they say, "Okay, we could do this the Armenian way, where you choose to answer the question, or we could do this the Calvinist way, and I pick somebody to answer the question." I forget which one who said that, but I think that's funny. So, which, which, I don't know, which, which, I'll, I'll let you guys be Armenians today. So. <laughs> Anybody want to go first? I might have to turn reform. What's going on? <laughs> Guys, you want to share? I was in your group. I, I appreciated a lot of your thoughts. You, you, you know, I don't know what, what one of you guys said. <laughs> 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 it's your job now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots of tensions that, especially like in the context of the United States, that we as Christians can face. And especially like what does persecution look like? It's, it can be easy to dismiss some of the opposition that we face as, and this was another question, like what's the difference between opposition and persecution? Um, but it, it can be easy to dismiss some of the opposition that we do face, like trying to be excluded from the public square as not being persecution or not being uh, rising to the level of, you know, I don't know, Again, it's like, where, where is that line between opposition and persecution? But it, it is, a lot of those things are often precursors to for the worst persecution later. And it's, I think, important at least for us to keep in mind now that's like where we might be heading. Well, it could get worse. You know, we, we obviously, we can't predict the future. Um, but at, at the very least, like, you know, we, we've been given a system of government where we have the ability to, you know, our rights and we have certain political rights and talk about Paul and how he used his rights as a Roman citizen. It's like there, there is a time and place for such things, even if we, our hope isn't ultimately in like an earthly system mm. of government. That's good. good. That's good. Thank you, Neil. Yes, sir. Uh, we said in, in, in the U.S. at large, we would have to say uh, education school and schools mm. and the, uh, the untruths social norms are being incrementally and gradually steadily brought into mm. the generations. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It, if you don't know, I'm a public school teacher in Norwalk Lama District. I don't know if you know Narciss. He's on the school board. And we could tell you some stories, which is like, wait, what? Like, this is totally inappropriate for a school to do this. 
but yeah, that, that's been, particularly the LGBTQ agenda, you know, that's been pretty prominent. In, there's, uh, not so much in elementary, but middle school, you're, you're already getting that stuff. So yeah, it's really hard to go to public school. I mean, I think that's probably a clear example of a, an ordered system that is, you know, evil. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's this, all, you know, religion is private and this is public and then like Christianity doesn't get a seat at the table because it's religious, but it all comes down from an ideology, right? There's, there's, a, there's a worldview embedded in what you think should be valued and what you think we should cultivate as a people and what we should propped up as virtuous and what is bad. I think Uncle Tim had a hand and then we'll go back here. Uncle Tim, please. I was just gonna say that Yeah, that's a yeah, that's another clear uh, clear example of something that's ordered, organized in direct opposition to God's design. Yeah, it's more prevalent. Yes. Um, I'm fortunate to be at a public school where um, our principal is Christian. Mm. Oh, I definitely would have read Between the Lines as a student. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? What's the most Got it. Got it. No problem. Striped sheets. Yeah. <laughs> Man. I'm glad we didn't do distance learning when I was in school. I would have, I would have just turned off the video. <laughs> anyway. Anybody else? Anybody else?
agreement, but still had respect at one point, but mm. that's all changed. Mm-hmm. So, wow. and it's the desire and the, the systems that are trying to drive us out of mm-hmm. the public square are, are mm-hmm. very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that uh, you said be in our brother's business. I think there are different degrees to get involved because Neil mentioned like the legal system mm-hmm. and different methods, and I think like the body of Christ has different roles, different parts, and, and I'm grateful for people who do things that I can or have the acuity to do. You know, it could be, Joe, you could be um, facing this by shepherding your grace group well and making sure there's strong families. You know, Neil could be writing and talking and advocating for certain policies that would help in the flourishing of Christianity and Christian ethics. Um, so th- there, there are different ways we could face this, yeah. Yes, Rick. Somebody, somebody was saying, "Well, you can't predict the future." Well, I think you can. Because I, I think, I think, I think Neil just said he's right there. <laughs> I disagree. I <laughs> no, because because if if it's not going to come to the place where people kill disciples of Jesus and think that they're doing God a favor, if that doesn't happen, then this passage is irrelevant to us. Hmm. This has to be viewed as something that is going to occur at some point. Whether or not we live to see that or whether we just get the the taste of this at the beginning, I don't know. That I can't predict, but it's going to go somewhere. And it's going to go to a place that's not going to be good. I don't know. And it has. or in local government or military or police or, and all that. And 
century, the influx of Islam into what was more of a Christian nation has completely taken over everything because the Christians gave up the, the leadership. Is now the government's ran by Muslims, the police, military, across the board. And yeah. I think of the example of, um, so I'm reading Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, and it's, just, it's really good. So one of the examples she talks about is if people, if somebody is some gender confusion, when you say, well, no, like your physical body is a gift from God that's grounded in objective reality. And when you can just own that, and it, it, it alleviates you of the confusion. Of course, it's, it could be a process and stuff, and you, but you say that because you care for the person, right? You're not just like, oh man, what's wrong with you? And all these other, um, you know, maybe unkind things, but you do it because you love the person. You want the person to flourish. You want the person to know who they are created in God's image and what all that means, yeah. Was there someone here? Sounds like a good idea. You should probably get on that. And do something. <laughs> do something to that degree. That sounds great. Yeah. Andrew, I think you had your hand up. Uh, yeah. Um, I just you, you, when we think of response to persecution, my mind goes to it acts. There's a point where church is getting persecuted, and um, the church gathers together and they worship and thank God for the the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. Um, and it like that just transforms the way you view persecution. First Peter talks about almost a joy in the refining fire of persecution, um, and there's not almost joy, a joy in the, in the refining fire of persecution. And um, we can get so caught up in the the fear and the anger, but like the Bible actually leads us to, oh, this is going to do a good work. Um, I, I, I'm being united with Christ. Like there's just 
there's even hope and life in the midst of persecution for the Christian. Mm -hmm. It's not just despair and mm -hmm. darkness. And, mm -hmm. and like there, there, is, there is good, thriving life in, even in the midst of persecution. Mm -hmm. And we see it. We see it throughout the churches that are being persecuted far more abundantly than we are. We see thriving, abundant life. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, like that, that's the hope of the gospel mm -hmm. uh, presented that even in the face of persecution, yeah. yeah. So, like, the idea of being united with Christ isn't just associated with all the bad things and the suffering that he did, but it's also associated with, every, like, it's a total package, right? Where you talk about future glory and even uh, a, a sanctifying work now. Yeah. That's all tied in together. Yeah. Cool. Any, any last thoughts? Well, thank you. You guys were great. Oh, man, you guys are awesome. So thank you for participating in this and, and, and listening and being engaged. So thank you so much. I'll close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your word and uh, the church. Uh, continue with this conference. Thank you for everybody here. May we continue to think through these things, these truths, your word. Uh, and may your Holy Spirit, the helper, uh, truly give us wisdom and discernment and um, to continue to fight the fight that you've called us uh, to battle, knowing that ultimately you are the victor and we get to share in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.